The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Psalm 1, the first book, first psalm in the book of Psalms. The associate pastors over the next three weeks, beginning this morning, are doing a brief series on psalms that speak to our hearts, starting with Psalm 1 and looking at these themes while Dr. Rogers is away. The first psalm introduces the book. Let us give heed to God's word as we hear it in this psalm. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like the chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is God's holy and inspired word. What is the most powerful influence over the way you live your life, the way you think, the things that you love, the choices you make, the standards you set for your morality, your behavior, your attitudes, the way you live your life in your relationships with your family, with your friends, with your school, at your job. What sets the music for the drumbeat by which you walk? Is the most powerful influence in your life the Word of God, or is it the mindset of the unbelieving and mocking world? Is your allegiance and life centered around the Word of your Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, or are you just giving Him lip service while your heart is really elsewhere? The reality is that our answer is revealed in our meditation. Psalm 1 stands as the introduction to the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms is the Old Testament book of worship. It's filled with Psalms that express the believer's communion and fellowship with God in all of life. It's filled with praise and thanksgiving. That's probably the first thing that comes to our mind when we think of Psalms, Psalms of praise and worship. But it also is filled with Psalms that cry out with repentance over sin and confession of sin. It's filled with psalms of struggle and seeking to trust God in the midst of that. It has songs of lament and anguish and sorrow when God seems absent. Psalms that struggle with perplexity and doubt. But all of these are part of a real relationship to God. 
And Psalm 1 is like the doorkeeper of all of that. It stands at the door of the Psalms, and it says, as it were, to anyone who would worship in the congregation of the righteous, which is referred to in this song. In other words, it calls out to all believers, to all who would confess faith in Jesus Christ. And Psalm tells us, Psalm 1 tells us that the primary characteristic of such a believer is that he or she delights or meditates on God's word day and night. It's that person's constant companion, his allegiance, his trust, his joy, his delight is in God's law. What does Psalm 1 teach us about meditation? Our first main point is this, the calling to meditate on God's word. We see this clearly set forth in verses 1 and 2, where we find this great contrast set before us here this calling to meditate on God's Word. The person who is truly blessed, the person who is truly happy in the Lord, we might say, is not the person whose life is formed by the sinful world, but the person whose life is formed by the Word of God. The world's influence and power over us is portrayed in very colorful language here. Blessed is the man who walks not in what? who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. It's a very colorful description of the allurement of the world. And some see a progression in these ideas, standing, walking, sitting. The idea is you start with a taste of the world's advice. You might dip your toe in the water, so to speak, of what the world has to offer and how the world speaks and how the world interprets life. And you end up in the scoffer's seat. You end up fully ensconced in the seat of the scoffer, the mocker, the cynic who laughs openly at any idea that there is a God, a living and true God who claims the worship and allegiance and faith and trust of all his creatures. This great contrast to the truly blessed person we see in verse 2, whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Meditating is a distinctly human trait, isn't it? In fact, we all meditate regularly, whether rightly or wrongly. God has designed us all with this capacity. We were made to meditate, to stop and consider something, to look at something thoroughly, and let it sink deeply into our hearts and minds. We do that all the time, whether we're thinking about it or not. We daydream. We think about something that we like or would like to think about or would like to happen in our lives. And so it shouldn't surprise us that the secular world or that the many religions of the world have seized upon this activity and made it their own in some sense. Meditation is promoted to get you in touch with your inner self or to connect you to the universe in some way. It's advertised to lower your blood pressure or boost your brain cells or free you somehow from the cares of this life. But Christian meditation, biblical meditation, is radically different from the many other forms you may encounter in the world or in other religions because biblical meditation does not involve emptying your mind 
but instead filling your mind with biblical truth, truth outside of ourselves, and then pondering that truth in our hearts. I like how one author defines it. Meditation is that is truly Christian is guided by the gospel, shaped by the scriptures, reliant upon the Holy Spirit, and exercised in faith. What a description. Guided by the gospel, shaped by the scriptures, reliant upon the Holy Spirit, and exercised in faith. To meditate is to so fix your mind and heart on God's word that you are captivated by it, that you build your life on it, that your spare thoughts tend to go to it, that that your idle mind tends to turn to it, just like when there's no other magnet around a compass, the north arrow will point north. That is the way our hearts are to be more and more, so that the Word of God saturates your life and shapes your very thinking and directs your words and actions and fuels your affections and your desires and what you love deep down. As Paul writes in Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. That's meditation. That's biblical meditation. The calling to meditate begins as a choice, as a conversion, we may say. The contrast here in Psalm 1 is just like the two ways that Jesus puts before us when he talks about the broad road that leads to destruction and the narrow road that leads to life. Isn't that a lot like Psalms, Psalm 1 verses 1 and 2? There's this way of the world that's ultimately going to perish, and there's the narrow way of the Word of God leading to life. It's the calling of the gospel, really, to renounce your own way, the way of your own independence and self-love and pride, and instead to give your life to Jesus Christ, to bow to his lordship, to submit your life to his will, and to completely trust in him, to save you from your sin, and to give you new life. That's the very beginning of a life of delighting in the word of God. In fact, the very nature of coming to Christ, the very essence of putting your faith in Jesus Christ means that now God's word has become your very delight and joy. It is no longer something that you oppose and hate and don't believe. It's now your joy. God's word becomes the daily manna of your life that sustains you and nourishes you sometimes in the, in the midst of the opposition of the world. We could use marriage as an example of what we see here in Psalm 1. June is still the number one month for marriages, by the way. Weddings take place, and we have a number of weddings of young folks getting married in our congregation. Think what it's like for a man and a woman to make these solemn vows and to begin to form a new unity, hopefully. Yes, already having done so to some degree as they've gotten to know each other and been engaged for some time. But now, with these solemn vows, with marriage, they each more and more learn to understand how the other thinks. What brings him joy? What makes her happy? What are their real sorrows? How do they easily become discouraged? What really motivates and moves them? Those discoveries are all part of a healthy marriage. And a husband and wife will be wise to think that way. There's a new unity. 
There's a new mindset. And so it is with someone who has come to faith in Jesus Christ. Now you're united to him by faith, and now you deeply want to know his will and his mind for your life. As much as you still stumble and fall, certainly, but there's a whole new orientation to the Word of God. The Word of God has become your heartbeat. The main character in Jane Austen's famous book, Pride and Prejudice, is is Elizabeth, Lizzie. She is courted by the young man, Mr. Darcy, who is very powerful and wealthy and highly esteemed. In fact, he even proposes to her. Probably many of you have read the book or seen the various movies of it. But Elizabeth turns him down. She's convinced that Mr. Darcy is proud and vain and self-absorbed. But then as the plot unfolds and through this series of circumstances, she finds out that, lo and behold, he's actually just the opposite of what she was convinced of, of what she thought He's really a humble, kind, and noble man. She has this complete change of mind about him. And you probably know how the story ends. That's the kind of change of mind about the Word of God that conversion brings. Now the Word of God is our delight. And when it comes to your view of the Bible, might it be that you need to have a complete change of mind? A Gallup poll that came out just the other week showed that a a shrinking population of Americans believe in any sense that the Bible is different from any other book. It's just a human book. Its author are humans. It's fallible. That's, That's the growing Gallup poll. Maybe you're in that group. You think the Bible is narrow and dated and merely a dusty work by human authors, but then... By the grace of God and by the power of the Holy Spirit, the Bible begins to come alive to you. The power of its truth comes to your mind, and you find that its message is life. That's what Psalm 1 is speaking about here. In contrast to the way of the world, the Bible becomes life. You delight in the law of God in your inner man. It becomes your meditation day and night. Meditation is every Christian's daily calling. Secondly, the blessedness of meditation. The blessedness of meditation, of daily pondering God's Word. We see these blessings revealed again in contrast in the rest of the psalm in verses 3 through 6. But looking at verse 3, here we read, He, this blessed man who meditates on God's Word day and night, verse 3, He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Every summer, our family heads to West Texas to see family down there. And if you've ever driven around West Texas, you know that there aren't that many trees. You can drive for an hour or two and not see a tree. You might see some stubbly grass and bushes and so forth, but Water is rare in many places of West Texas. And if you see a stand of cottonwood trees growing, you might stop. Trees mean scenic wonder here. There's water. There's a spring. There's a little stream there. This is great. Let's stop and take some photos here. We Easterners don't tend to think of trees that way. They're all over the place. It's interesting because if you live down in West 
Texas, you love the weather no matter what because you love the sunny days that are always there, it seems. But then, and they only get nine inches of rain a year. We get about 39 inches of rain. So when it rains, you love it too. And if it's a dreary, overcast, foggy day, oh, what a beautiful day. There's rain. Didn't you feel that way in May? All those days, those beautiful days. Water is life. I know you all felt that way. Psalm 1 is written in a climate that's arid. And so this picture of this tree with roots going down to the streams of water is this symbol of blessedness. And there's this tree that yields fruit in its season, like the life rooted in Jesus Christ will bring forth fruit, and its leaf does not wither. Maybe we can press the metaphor to say that when the droughts come or when the storms and the winds and the arid winds sweep across, the tree perseveres, it endures, keeps on. And in all that he does, he prospers. We know from our study of the book of Job that that doesn't mean the believer is going to have a life of ease and a life just going from strength to strength of health and wealth and everything good happening. No, it's talking about spiritually prospering in this life, and certainly, by far more certain, gloriously, when Jesus Christ returns. But then there's this stark contrast to the wicked in verse 4. The wicked are not not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. The farmers in those days would thresh the grain and throw up the grain into the air, and the good kernels of grain would fall, would not be blown away by the wind, but the chaff the rest of the stalk and so forth that they didn't want, on a windy day it would blow away. The psalmist is saying, the wicked are like that chaff blown away by the wind. Why is that? Because, the psalm goes on to say, they are living under the judgment of God. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. But the way of the wicked will perish They are under God's judgment now, and ultimately, if they do not turn to Jesus Christ, they are ultimately under his judgment in the life to come. Someone may have everything. There might be a celebrity you follow. You might get their tweets or whatever, and they might have wealth and abundance, and they show up on the front page of the newspaper, and people follow them, and they've got two million followers on their Twitter account. That celebrity might have everything but they have nothing if they're under the judgment of God because of their sin. And that is where each of us is in our own brokenness and fallenness apart from Jesus Christ. And so this blessedness of those who know and meditate on the word of God who have come to God through Jesus Christ, and verse 6 culminates with this idea, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous. That knowing is not just that God is aware of what's happening in our lives. No, it's no in the sense of set his love upon. The Lord sets his love and grace and guidance and providence on the way of the righteous to sustain them and to uphold them throughout life. Isn't this psalm a psalm that points us to the gospel? Because it becomes clear that really there's only one person in history who perfectly fulfilled the blessedness described in this song, and that is the person of Jesus Christ. 
We are told his food, he said, was to do the will of my Father in heaven. That's Jesus Christ. That is the ultimate, perfect, blessed man. In fact, the highest peak of the mountain of God's revealed truth is the person of Jesus Christ. His character, his life, his humility, his coming in the flesh, his deity, his cross, his resurrection, his glory and lordship. The only way of blessing and life is through faith in Jesus Christ. And that's the pinnacle of our meditation, what Jesus Christ has done. And so when we sang that hymn, Jesus, keep me near the cross, we were speaking biblically. And once you come to know Jesus Christ, you need to keep dwelling on him. Keep drinking from him who is the fountain of living water welling up into our souls. It's interesting how in Romans 8, the Apostle Paul describes something that is very similar to what we read in Psalm 1. Romans 8 begins with that declaration in verse 1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the gospel in a nutshell. But then as he goes down, by the time he gets to verse 5, listen to how he's describing what Psalm 1 is speaking about. He says, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Isn't that what, exactly what Psalm 1 is saying about where our minds are? And, and then he says this in verse 6, For to set the mind on the flesh is death. That's like the wicked that the wind blows away. Under the judgment of God, it's spiritual death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. The apostle is talking about Christian experience. Now there's no condemnation for us in Christ, but now increasingly our minds are set on the things of the Spirit. And what is that? What is the fruit of that? Life, peace. Meditation is not merely a relaxation exercise, not at all. Meditation is daily drinking in and experiencing the very life and peace of God in our souls through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, finally, what are some practical suggestions and applications for meditating for the Christian? Number one, don't look at meditation as a burden but look at it as a channel of blessing and joy and fellowship with God. Don't look at meditation as a burden. Oh, another duty I've got to perform. No, look at it as a channel of blessing, of meeting with God. This is not drudgery. This is the way of life, a way of deeply taking in God's Word, chewing it over in your mind, letting it work its way deeply into your soul, taking the Word of God by faith, believing it's true. Meditation is not, surprisingly maybe to some of you, about the position of your body. You don't have to have your legs crossed and your arms up in the air in some way. No, meditation is about the position of your heart and mind in relationship to the Word of God. The Word of God, having our ears open to the Word, having our eyes on the text of God, having our minds and hearts focused on the Word of God, not on being empty, but on being filled with God's truth. Secondly, realize that hearing the Bible, reading the Bible, studying the Bible, even memorizing the Bible, all need to move into meditation to have their full effect. 
all those things that I just listed are good and fine, and I want you to do those things, and we're called to do those things. But we must understand that there is further deepness, we might say, to study, to memorization even, and that is meditation. Meditation, we would say, bridges the gap between Bible study and application to life, or Bible study and prayer, or Bible study and communion with Jesus Christ. It's this way. As we turn over God's Word in our mind and believe it and chew on it and submit to it, it naturally leads into these other things, to true prayer, true communion with Christ. The Puritans were what we might call doctors of the soul when it comes to this spiritual discipline. Here's a couple quotes from them. Thomas Watson writes, The reason we come away so cold from reading the Word is because we do not warm ourselves at the fire of meditation. William Bates writes, The great reason why our prayers are ineffectual is because we do not meditate before them. William Bridge writes, Begin with reading or hearing, go on with meditation, end in prayer. You see the important part meditation plays. Number three, Understand that right meditation will always be a battle in this life. Understand that meditation will always be a battle. Yes, sometimes it will be pure joy and life, and thank God for such times that your fire is so-called warmed, that the, the fire of God in your heart is kindled by the Word of God. But don't we know from sad experience that much of the time our lives are not like that? We can even come and worship here with the people of God, and we're distracted, we're worried about something, we're thinking about something else. Our hearts are so easily dull. But Psalm 1 is telling us that our meditation is in this context, the temptation to think like the unbelieving world. The Christian faces that temptation constantly to spend all our thoughts on the things of this life. Maybe there's some sports team you love, and you can be so caught up in that that it pushes aside the things of God. Or maybe it's the latest political news that you just have to listen to, and you're distracted about that. Or maybe you're constantly on your phone, just paging mindlessly through whatever is there, or reading texts or something like that. As we will see in the next two weeks as pastors York and Walker talk about other psalms, Biblical meditation is very, very often a battle within our own minds and souls against, against meditating in the wrong direction or meditating on the wrong things. And we're going to consider sinful anger and envy and fear and wrong and sinful desires that so easily take over our hearts. All of these fight for control of our hearts. But Jesus Christ says, I want your heart as mine. And meditation is one of the primary disciplines he's given to us for that to happen. Of course, fundamentally, that happens at conversion, at new birth, but then the ongoing transformation goes on for the rest of our earthly lives until we see Jesus Christ. We need to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Number four, seek daily to meditate on some text of God's Word. But... Don't be discouraged or distracted by how well you are doing with memorizing long-term. Did you hear? This is a long one. Seek daily to meditate on some text of God's Word, but don't be discouraged about how well you're doing memorizing long-term. 
I think we often can grow too discouraged by that. Some of you here may be excellent at memorizing long-term. Some of you young folks, all I can say is enjoy it while you're young. Your memory is good. I could say memorize a whole chapter of Scripture by next week, and you could come back and proudly do it. I don't know if it would stay, but you could do it. And that's fine. That's a great gift. But seek to be fed in meditation one day at a time. Don't memorize just with a view to what the future might hold, that someday I might not be able to read the Word, I might be blind, or who knows, someday I might be in prison for my faith, and will I have Scripture stored up? Well, that might happen, but that's not to be the primary motivation for what you're doing. Your main consideration needs to be, how can I delight in God's Word so to live near my Savior today? Do you see how encouraging that is? If you don't still have it memorized tomorrow, that's not the end of the world. You could have another verse or do the same text again or you can memorize it again next month. Seek to meditate on some text of God's Word for one day. And with that as your goal, you don't have to be worried whether or not you still have that text memorized tomorrow. Seek the blessedness of meditation today. And finally, keep the gospel central in your meditation. We might ask, how does biblical meditation change us? Well, it's not simply a technique that changes you or me from within. No, we are given new life in Jesus Christ when we believe in him. But then, how does change take place in our daily lives by the power of the Spirit? Especially when you think that so much of what we do and say is spontaneous. We live out the kind of person we really are. That's how life is. Think of it. When we speak and act, 90% of the time we do so before we even have time to think about it beforehand. We're spontaneous. And this is where meditation and God's work in our lives is seen. Meditation is essentially being amazed at God's grace to us in Jesus Christ and thinking about it. It is looking at the diamond of the gospel through the lens of God's word as the whole Bible really points to Jesus Christ in some way, and all the variety of ways that the Bible teaches us and points us to the gospel, and holding that diamond and looking at a different part of it every day. That's what meditation is. If we, if we learn just one verse and said it to ourselves every day, it would get old. It's like eating your favorite food is good, but if you ate it every meal, you would get tired of it after a while. We need the variety that God's Word brings to us holding that diamond in view, seeing the greatness and glory of God revealed in Jesus Christ, seeing the reality of our own brokenness and sin, and seeing the beauty and the worth of Jesus Christ. And slowly but surely, we become what we behold. Really, that's what Paul's saying in 2 Corinthians 3.18, the very familiar verse. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another. Do you see what it's saying? As we behold the glory of Jesus Christ, as we meditate, as we delight in God's law, God's word, the gospel, we are transformed. Meditation on God's word shapes our souls by the power of the Holy Spirit. As we meditate, the affections of our hearts will be stirred to be astonished at Christ's glory and grace. 
And that awe and that astonishment, that worship is tied in to thanksgiving and praise and confession and faith and looking to Jesus Christ daily as our Savior and Lord. And so we are changed more and more. And so we are truly blessed. Blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Amen. Father, we thank you that we live in fellowship with the living God, that you are always with us, that you tell us that you are faithful to your word. And here we are, as always, in great need of your sanctifying work, of your pointing the spotlight of the Holy Spirit upon Jesus Christ for us, that every day that we would see Jesus Christ, that we would behold him. And even this morning, as we've had this opportunity together to think about the centrality of your word in our lives, Father, give us a new resolve. Give us a new attitude of delight and worship in you. Give us a new desire, even, to make your word our very food and drink each day. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.